Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 2, Episode 5, and today we are going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this one, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how you doing? Pretty good. How about you? I am doing well. We are in a bit of a gauntlet here where it's movies that I have seen, but you have not seen. So a fun little fun little way to turn the podcast on its head in the middle of season two here. It is. We've got a, a little twist going on here. Who knows? Maybe next season none of us will, see if, will have seen any of the movies. I don't find yeah. that likely. But. Well, probably not. <laughs> yeah. That seems, yeah, that seems pretty unlikely. <laughs> All right, so I'll talk quickly about my personal history with this. So I this is based on a Stephen King novel, and I am a pretty big Stephen King fan. I've read, I mean, he, Stephen King is extremely prolific, and I've read, I think, close to three quarters of his books, which that that's a lot. That's more than most. I do not frequently run into people who have read more Stephen King books than I have. There's just something about his prose and the way he tells stories and sort of he has a penchant for like omniscient narration that I just really enjoy. It really tickles me. And so I've read a lot of his books and I had read a lot of them at a pretty young age. And I had heard that The Shining was at that point really the only good movie adaptation of a Stephen King book. And similar to last week, how my parents had gotten a DVD collection of Hitchcock films, they had also gotten a DVD collection of Stanley Kubrick films. And because I was a fan of The Shining, the book, then I wanted to watch the movie. And I was pretty underwhelmed by the movie, actually, when I watched it. So this, I mean, I was probably 13 or so, so this was probably 2000 or 2001, and a lot of what I liked from the book was not in the movie, and I didn't really like it very much. So I was excited to revisit it with with older eyes and a better understanding of what goes into adaptations and what they change, and also just understanding like <laughs> what makes good old movies a little a little better so that was and but I, sh- I should say that I also told Matt going into it because you are not a horror movie fan generally I said oh it's not really that scary because my memory as a kid was not was of being not that scared but I was watching it this time and I I had to text Matt because I knew you hadn't watched it yet and I was like oh sorry it's actually a lot scarier than I remember so it it was basically like I was seeing this movie for the first time in almost every way in fact there's some stuff about the book that now I remember I was really disappointed they had cut from the movie like at the end they have like hedge animals that come to life and I was really disappointed about that at the time, but I actually remembered watching that in the movie. Like, it was an implanted memory in my brain because, like, I had just 
changed the memory from being upset that it didn't exist in the movie to remembering that it happened, even though it clearly did not. That's amazing. Yeah. So what about you? What were, what were your expectations? What did, you, what did you know about the movie going Yeah, in? so, you know, it's impossible to kind of uh, live the, the life that I have lived without being familiar with or, you know, uh, understanding the place that The Shining has in the cultural zeitgeist. I'm mm-hmm. someone that loves movies, and so I'm very familiar with uh, Stanley Kubrick, and I've watched, you know, he doesn't have a huge oeuvre, uh, but, you know, I've seen several of his films and uh, enjoyed them quite a bit. And so The Shining has always been uh, on the list of things that I wanted to get to to watch at some point. And, you know, I've seen gifts and things and I've seen a lot of discourse about The Shining, but I also didn't really know what the events of the book were about. I knew that it took place at at a hotel, but I had had to clarify that because I thought that maybe it was like a mental hospital or something like that from, from what I heard of mm-hmm. discussions. And I knew that it had Jack, Jack Nicholson in it, and I knew that it involved like ghosts and things like that. But otherwise, I really didn't know much about the story and what's going on with it. Um, I will say generally, my, my perspective on horror films... I generally avoid horror films a lot. I don't love to watch horror films. I generally enjoy having seen a lot of horror films and discussing uh, horror films, the ones that I've enjoyed, but I don't like the experience of watching them. And the biggest reason why is because I get really bad night terrors. And I get night terrors probably about uh, like every three weeks, something like that. But when I watch a scary movie, it can trigger like night terror episodes for a couple days afterwards. So I generally avoid horror movies because I, I, you know, I'm trying to avoid those kind of experiences. And for those that don't know, night terrors are, you know, like very vivid, uh, disturbing for me, usually lucid dreams that come with uh, a little bit of like parasomnia and like moving around and like uh, sometimes I've done things like waking up screaming or jumped out of bed and broken my foot or, you know, uh, smacking someone that's Ugh. in bed next to me or whatever it is as I'm as I'm waking up from these uh, episodes of night terrors. Uh, and so I'm generally pretty careful about when I'm watching things to try to avoid that kind of stuff. And, you know, this is this is the only reason why I avoid horror movies. Otherwise, I love uh, the idea of horror movies and the way that they can do social commentary in ways that other things really can't. And I love genre fiction in general. Uh, and yet I just have found myself uh, generally incapable of watching horror films without doing a bit of prep work ahead of time so that I can so that I can experience it safely. So th- this was a situation where Lori was threatening to shut down the podcast <laughs> before we'd even finished season two, uh, if it was going to impact the home life too much. Right, exactly. Um, uh, at, th- at this point, we're, we're pretty good because we usually just like keep a barrier in between us when, when we sleep so that if I flail around or smack something, uh, you know, I don't hurt anybody. So. Oh, okay. That's yeah. good. That's so, good. So we're safe. We're good. Um, yeah. So that's my personal All history right. with the film. Cool. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the time period here. So this is 1980, the beginning of a new decade. Uh, The movie was released on May 23rd. And just like last week, I'll pop a little playlist into the show notes of the top 10 songs this week. If you were just jamming out on your way to the theater, 
but the top three were Call Me by Blondie, and then a song that I knew, but I could not have picked the band off of a multiple choice list. So that's uh, Funky Town by... I'll give our listeners just a couple seconds to shout it at the shout it while they're on the subway if they want by Lips Inc. I actually don't even know if you're supposed to pronounce it Lips Incorporated or Lips Inc. And I'm curious how many other people know as well because I they're just not a band I've ever heard talked about before. Send us an email if you knew what the band that sings Funky Town yes. was before hearing it here. Yes, definitely. And tell us if it's Anchor Incorporated, because, yeah, we did a lot of other research, but not that. And then the third one is Lost in Love by Air Supply. Uh, So just a few events that happened in 1980. Something that oddly connects to our previous podcast, at least tangentially, is Alfred Hitchcock died in 1980, which is probably not something we'd ordinarily mention other than we just <laughs> spent an hour and a half talking about one of his movies. The So the Iran hostage crisis started in 1979 and then ended in 1981, so it spanned this entire year. On May 22nd of 1980, Pac-Man is released, which everyone knows what Pac-Man is, but would become one of the most popular, if not the most popular, arcade games of all time. On the Oh, this one surprised me. On June 1st, CNN was launched. And, like, in my head, I know that our 24-hour news world is not how it's always been, but I'd never actually thought to look up when it started. And when it launched, it was the first 24-hour news program. So uh, there, there's there been a lot of uh, soul searching and complaining in, I guess, the last decade, maybe longer, about the perils of 24-hour news and what that does. But it all started uh, the same year The Shining came out. Yeah. Probably not a coincidence What is that like at all. three weeks after The Shining came out? So Yeah. That's wild. No, just one week after one The week. Shining came yes, out. One week, yes, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. Pretty big deal. In 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan defeated, Republican Ronald Reagan defeated the Democratic incumbent Jimmy Carter for the office of the presidency of the United States of America. That was in November, obviously. And then also in November, Voyager 1 flew within 77,000 miles of Saturn and sent back some, our first, uh, like, high-res or, I don't know, high-res, but our first uh, grokkable pictures of Saturn. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention in 1980, I don't know if you have anything, Maddie, but this seemed pretty poignant to me because I just finished watching the Beatles documentary on Disney+, Plus. but John Lennon was murdered on December 8th. Just an absolute horrifying thing, and, you know, it always sucks when we lose artists when they still have so much so much life left to live for them but also so much art left to give to the world and yeah I've prevented any sort of Beatles reunion from ever happening and it just feels like there's so much story there that was unwritten which is 
It's just really sad. It is really sad, and especially sad that uh, John Lennon was murdered, um, and his life was taken from him. You know, it's sad whenever tragedy hits people, but it's just a particularly, you know, just years that feel like they're stolen. Um, which is, you know, that that one stuck out to me a lot as I was as I was reading through as well. Yeah. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say about the time period here? Or no, not not really. You know, it's a it starts a decade of of you know of Reaganism and things like that. The decade in which I was born, kind of you can look at 1980. Uh, it's a lot of times is defined as like when millennials start popping up, and mm-hmm. so you know that's uh, it's right at this transition period between Gen X and millennials, and you know kind of the power shifts in different generational things and all of that. Yeah, and not to mention the decade that most um, music historians agree has produced the greatest music in Western music history. That's significant. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's talk about reactions. How did how did you do with your viewing of the film? Did it scare you? Did you have any Night Terrors issues? And did you like it? Did you hate it? So... Uh, I didn't find it very scary, to to be perfectly honest. Mm. It didn't it didn't really scare me That's very good. much. It didn't trigger any night terror episodes. I did have a little bit of uh, hypnagogic lucid dreaming, so meaning that like as I was falling asleep, I had a little bit of lucid dreaming be uh, as a result of this, but nothing that was not manageable. That happens to me all the time. So um, it happens to me especially when I'm playing video games and I haven't beaten them yet, and my brain's like, mm, got to figure out how to win that video game. Uh, so it was a similar kind of experience for me. I was kind of playing through the ideas and things like that. I don't think that I was really actually scared through pretty much all of the uh, all of the film. There's a couple of like I think there was one scene that my heart rate got up just a little bit in in the early part of the film, but otherwise I didn't find it too scary. It wasn't too difficult for me to watch. As far as just enjoying it as a film uh i didn't i didn't love it and you know it's tricky because i wonder if i'd watched it when it when i was younger if i might have enjoyed it more and had more like nostalgic memories about it but watching it now there are a few things that i bounced off of one thing that was really clear to me as i was watching this time is the level of craft craftsmanship in this film is incredibly high and it's on the the only things we've done on the podcast that match that level of craftsmanship is probably like Dune and the Pixar movies we've covered, and otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's just a very high level of craftsmanship that we don't normally see, and I enjoyed that. So I enjoyed the experience and the like thought of watching the film, but the film itself, I was you know just okay with. It was not my favorite, but. Uh, it was still fun for me to watch. Yeah, I think I was somewhat similar to you, probably a little higher than you uh, when it all when it all comes down to it. There, we're gonna talk about it in our scenes. There is certainly st- some stuff in here that has not aged well at all, and it makes it pretty difficult to love as an emotional dramatic experience as a modern day viewer it's just very hard to or at least it was hard for me to lose myself in 
the excitement or the joy or the fear of this movie because of those things. That being said, the music is extremely effective in this movie, and we'll talk about a few specifics. And so there was, there's a lot of parts of this movie that individually I really, really adore. It's just like, oh, I love, especially when I was going back to rewatch a few scenes before the podcast, and there was a few stuff that I was rewatching and sort of like Googling to try and figure out just how they had done it. I was like, oh, I like, I really, if you just show me this scene by itself, I'm like, I love that scene. That is, it's exciting. It's fun. It's, as you said, there is an extremely high level of craftsmanship, but the gestalt of it all is just sort of like, yeah, it's a little cold and unaffecting for a modern day viewer. Um, <laughs> our, I was thinking about my are the acting teacher that I had in college, the greatest compliment that he would give if someone had done a really good job in an acting scene. Uh, and that's Bruce J. Miller, who probably will never listen to the podcast, but I don't, if he does find it, I don't want him to be sad. I didn't mention his name, but his greatest compliment that he would give people is that they elevated him to the level of an audience member. So someone who is not no longer watching something critically, but just forgot to take notes, forgot to think about what or why or how something was working and just became emotionally invested. And I think this was maybe the first film, or maybe Pete's Dragon as well, were both were the two films that so far I just, there was no point where I was really ever elevated to the level of an audience member. There was stuff like, I always felt like I was analyzing and had the distance to be able to analyze what was going on. Yeah, for sure. And that's probably a big part of why uh, I didn't find myself particularly scared by this one. And, you know, it's a, as you said, there's, there's parts of this film that are just incredible. They're stunning that there's uh, acting choices that are made that I love that I thought were really good. There's so much cinematography. As someone that loves cinematography, there's so much cinematography in this film that's just iconic and you can tell that it's been replicated over and over and over again and it just looks incredible. And then, you know, the story just, uh, you know, is is difficult for me and there's all the external things that, that make it difficult for me to really jump in and enjoy this one. Yeah, so before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about um, the personnel and also we'll make this now the personnel and stats section because I did think that maybe we should start saying what the budget for the film is and how it did in the box office. So this was a $19 million film and the box office brought in $47 million. So a healthy profit. It did not crack the top 10 for this year. It wasn't one of the top 10 grossing films. I think it was about $10 million off of breaking onto that list. Um, number 10 in 1980 was Blues Brothers, and then uh, we didn't mention it, but of course number one this year was Empire Strikes Back. Sad as it is that we've now done two years with the first two Star Wars movies and haven't covered either of them, so sorry about that, Maddie. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, it's uh, we're, we're saving it. 
Yeah, I, I will say on the box office numbers for those, like that that's really good box office numbers for the time period. A nineteen million dollar budget is, you know, a big production, maybe like a medium production at the time period. Like Blues Brothers, for example, had a budget of thirty million dollars, and Empire Strikes Back was even more than that. Uh, so a turnaround of forty seven million is a really good return on investment and you see this a lot with horror films that you can get a lot of return on investment for a low in for a low you know budget to start out with and this is a really iconic horror film that i think uh kind of starts that wave that you see especially through the 80s and 90s yeah and especially um like one of the things they did for this was they cut out basically any need for any special effects or practical effects because they didn't have the topiary coming to life. There you go. So let's talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick. So this was coming near the end of his career. So this was his third to final movie. And he had in his filmography, he has 16 films. So from 1951 to 1962, he had a he had nine films in there, probably the most successful of which are The Killing, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, and Lolita. And the reason I'm segmenting those nine films off from the following seven is on the first nine films, he directed all of them, and he was a writer on some of them, and he was a producer on some of them, but he was never director, writer, producer until his final seven films where he would be director, writer, producer on all of them. And so I'm just going to run down those seven films quickly. So that's 1964, Dr. Strangelove, 1968, 2001, uh, Space Odyssey, 1971, uh, Clockwork Orange, 1975, Barry Lyndon, 1980, The Shining, 1987, Full Metal Jacket, and then uh, over a decade later, 1999 with Eyes Wide Shut. So the, I've seen one, two, I've seen five of these, maybe six of these, but none of them have I seen as an adult. But I, th- I think even though his, he had well-regarded films in the previous set, I think these seven are sort of the ones that come to mind for most people when they think about Stanley Kubrick. It's sort of <laughs> when he became got sort of that auteur status. And maybe you could say megalomaniac as we'll bit, get yeah. into a little bit later. Or control freak. Uh, but... I will say my favorite, um, my favorite Stanley Kubrick film is Spartacus. I love that movie. Mm. And... You know, I have seen Spartacus 2001, Doctor Strangelove, Now the Shining, and also Eyes Wide Shut. And there a lot of... The first three, I really enjoy a lot. And then the last two, The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, didn't quite enjoy as much. But, you know, it's, again, it's very clear that uh, Stanley Kubrick has uh, an incredible eye for, uh, eye for film. And there's a lot of... Just his, his oeuvre has a lot of... Uh, craftsmanship in it and a lot of people love his films and there's you know there's a reason why people love his films so much so that's stanley kubrick uh i also wanted to talk quickly about stephen king so stephen king we all know stephen king he's one of the best-selling authors of all time if 
not. Maybe he has the most bestsellers. Not 100% sure. Um, so The Shining was his third novel. He had started in 1974 with Carrie, and then 1975 with Salem's Lot, and then 1977 he'd actually published two books, The Shining and Rage, although Rage was published under a pseudonym uh, until he got too big and people figured it out. He had a pseudonym of Richard Bachman where he'd uh, <laughs> he just wrote too fast. I mean, he's always written fast. And books that he sort of felt like were a little different than what he normally did, he published under that pseudonym. And then in nine, like, but the, his first three books, Carrie Salem's Lot and The Shining, all were just like mega hits. They were all super successful. And then he followed that up with The Stand in 1978 and then uh, The Long Walk in the Dead Zone in 1979. So I won't go through his entire bibliography, but that brings us up to where this movie is. And he had actually written a script for this film, but I mean, he didn't have anywhere near the status Stanley Kubrick did. And so yeah, in the contract uh, yeah, he, for he got ousted. The contract for this film, it basically uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, didn't sign it until he was allowed to, you know, have full creative control and throw out the book as much as he felt like. Uh, so they yep. only, you know, it is only loosely an adaptation of the book. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's Stephen King, and I do think like the it's changed a little bit in recent years as visual effects have gotten better, easier, and uh, the delta between how good they are and how much they cost has decreased. Um, So it's gotten a little easier to film a good amount of his supernatural stuff. But part of the problem is like a lot of his books rely on internal monologue, and it's just always been really difficult to film. And I think Unfortunately, a lot of the reason this movie is so successful is because it deviates from the book in so many ways. Though, though I do want to jump in and add, uh, one of the things that's fascinating about Stephen King is that he might be the writer with the most film adaptations. It's something like, it was difficult for me to count, but it's something like 65 or 66 films that have been, or books that have been Jeez. adapted into films. <laughs> Uh, it is so many, and a lot of them are incredibly highly regarded. A lot of he's one of the writers whose films have been adapted into the most Academy Award-winning films, um, and it's so there's there's a lot of things that he's made that that have been very highly regarded, and I think that a lot of Stephen King's career um, can be tied to the movie adaptations that he has, and like. Um, the interplay between the books that he's writing and the adaptations and the way that kind of fuels his own, what do you call it, his own reputation, and then it fuels more readers of the books and all of those things, I think has become kind of a template for a lot of the way that that highly published authors kind of maintain their careers since this time period. And The Shining, I think, is one of the big reasons why that works. Um even though it's not, you know, very much of an adaptation, it's it plays very loosely with what's going on in the book. Do you want to say anything else about Stephen King? No, that's it. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, Jack Nicholson. We don't have to talk a ton about him because he's Jack Nicholson. But I didn't realize he's the most nominated film actor in Academy Awards history. He's got 12 nominations, I believe it is. So he had, as of this recording, and I think it's expected that he's done making films although he is still with us. Um, he, I believe he's done 63 feature films, and this was his 36th. So it's pretty much smack dab in the, in the middle of his career, maybe just at the, the very end of the middle of his career. And when he filmed this, he already had uh, five nominations under his belt, one of which was a win, and those nominations were for Easy Rider, which was a supporting actor, and then lead actor for Five Easy Pieces, The Last Detail, Chinatown, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is what he what he won for. And it was the Stephen King is actually cited as saying because of his performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or because of the cultural prevalence of his performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he was against casting Jack Nicholson in this movie he thought that it would make the audience would never have a moment where they didn't find his character menacing which on one hand I do think Stephen King was right about that but on the other hand I also think Stanley Kubrick kind of did away with any of the subterfuge that exists in the book that Jack Torrance in the movie might not be a bad person. Like, I think it was something... I don't think you were ever really intended to like or trust Jack. He's always just a little menacing and a little off. Yeah, it's a... It's... I don't know. It's interesting for me because as I'm watching... As I was watching this film, I've seen a lot of his later work. And so I didn't have that impression as much. Like, I saw him and I thought, that's very much Jack Nicholson, and he's uh, doing a very Jack Nicholson type of character. But at the same time, I didn't have that impression that he was, you know, definitely uh, insane or anything like that as the movie got started just from uh, his reputation. With that said, I think that the way the film is structured, I got that feeling from him just from the performance and the way the film was written. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, as, as you said, I think that's what Stanley Kubrick is going for. And I don't know. I, uh, the other thing that I would say about that is that I think that regardless of if an actor may have a re- reputation a certain way, I would rather cast them and let them treat them as professionals and let them act uh, and try to rise yeah. to whatever the piece is that they're doing. So that's my thoughts on, on that. Yeah, particular. I think that's a fair point. Yeah, trust trust the actor to to do their job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then the other thing that I want to say about Jack Nicholson is he has a long and sordid history of being the kind of person that is similar to the kinds of characters that he is known for playing. Um, and so he has a long history of, you know, a lot of different issues with lawsuits for uh 
domestic violence or for assault charges and all these kinds of things. But additionally, the relationship that he was known for that was the most tempestuous, if that's the right word, and perhaps the most violent, was the one that he was in at this time period uh, with Angelica Huston. And they were together for 17 years, and this is right in the middle of that time period. So that part I did bringing into the film... Uh, affected the way that I was viewing it because I couldn't separate that part of of Jack Nicholson, the person with the character that he's portraying on the film, and how like realistically and uh, sadistically he is pre- performing the role of Jack Torrance and his uh, you know domestic violence that he is perpetrating in that film. Yeah, I <laughs> it it makes it harder, and it makes it harder. Well, actually, I don't know if it's better or worse or easier or harder if they're supposed to be playing a good guy or supposed to be playing a bad guy. But either way, it's just, like, really crappy to try and disentangle those things. Yeah, for sure. So, And then you had one one other person you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I just wanted to mention Shelley Duvall in this film because for me... Mm-hmm. Um, for me, she carried the film, and I was the most interested in her performance throughout this film. Yeah. And that is not the case for a lot of audience. She's apparently an incredibly polarizing figure from this performance. Uh, she won, one is, you know, in quotation marks here. She received, and uh, what's the, it wasn't called the Razzies at the time period, I don't think, but she received an award for the worst performance of the year for this film. And uh, but it's also been cited as like one of uh, the best performances in a horror horror film for Shelley Duvall. So, you know, it's all over the place and she doesn't have a ton of credits. Um, Some of the things that she's known for are things like Annie Hall. She was in and she was in Popeye and played Olive Oil. She was in the film Frankenweenie and she just a variety of things. She never really got as much status. and a big part of why she didn't get as much status is because she did not get along with Stanley Kubrick very well uh, in this film. And so, you know, there was a little bit of, what's the way that we could say this? A little bit of priming the audiences from Stanley Kubrick that to not enjoy her performance as much uh, and to be more critical of her performance in this film. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that. So that surprises me to hear you say that there are people who didn't like her performance here i thought it's like the hardest role in the movie and yeah i agree with you that she that she really carried it yeah it's a for me it definitely was i was you know fascinated with the choices that she was making and i thought there was a lot of uh, the, the craftsmanship extends to the choices that she's making she makes a lot of very subtle um some subtle and some kind of you know exaggerated uh, choices but i think sure, that, yeah. that they stand out when they do Um, And one of the things as I was looking into the the behind-the-scenes stuff for this is that Stanley Kubrick was incredibly critical of Shelley Duvall in her performance, even to the point where you might describe it as verbally abusive towards her performance. And, you know, uh, there was some press of him essentially kind of, like, seeding the idea that if the film was a failure that it was her fault. and And so that gives me a little bit of... I don't know, I bounced off of that a little bit as I was watching the film, though I didn't really find that information until after I'd seen it, but it kind of affected my reaction coming into the podcast. That makes sense. Uh, Should we move on and talk about some of the scenes Let's do it, yeah. Yeah, so the first scene that I wanted to talk about is the 
It, so it's when they... So Jack's already gotten the job, and they're going to go to the... They go to the hotel for the or the lodge for the first time, and they're getting shown around, and they meet the cook, Dick. I think it's Dick Halloran. Is it Dick? It is. Well, it is. Okay, good. So we don't just have needless dicks all over the podcast. That would be... <laughs> well, that would be good for HBO, I suppose. So, and he's showing them all around, and there's... Uh, the the thing I talked about rewatching some of the scenes and some of the stuff that I loved and there is at the beginning of this scene there is a continuous uh what we now from the West Wing call uh walk and talks, but a continuous shot of Shelley Duvall and uh Dick Halloran or I guess um Winnie, right? Is it Winnie? She is Wendy. What's her name? Wendy, yes. Wendy, not Winnie. Of Wendy, well, there's a Dick, scene where they and... ask her, does she go by Freddie or Winnie? And she says she goes by Wendy. So that's probably what threw you yeah, off. Yeah, it, it's this scene. It's this scene. Um, so the two of them and then the kid are walking through the, the industrial-sized kitchen. And it's probably a 45-second to minute shot of them just going all around and through and uh it's just really cool they the i i was shocked when i looked up after the movie that they did not film this on location like they used some external shots of a real lodge i think in montana but the interior of the hotel was a gigantic set that they built and there are so many continuous shots. Um, there's this one, and then there's the famous one of the kid doing his bike through the hallways. And again, it's a probably 45 second to to minute shot that's just continuous all the way through, and so many curves, and it never cuts. Yeah. And it's it's really cool. Well, the other thing that's incredible about that is that the the like where they go from the freezer and they turn through the kitchen uh, and kind of go through these doors off to the side. Uh, you walk through mm-hmm. those doors and then it goes like in behind the set. And then the next thing that you do when you turn is you walk onto the, the, the maze. So uh, they, in the behind oh, the really? scenes, they take you through that part of yeah. the set and you see it. They're just right next to each other. Oh, that's pretty cool. So that, that's what I love about this scene. I also really like the, I think both uh wendy and dick do such great jobs through this entire thing with their dialogue it's really nothing dialogue but it is just so snappy and it doesn't mean anything but it's really just a vehicle to for them to be talking and keep everything moving while the camera is moving but you also learn that uh, this magical talent, it's called The Shining, that um, the kid has, Dick also has. And so this is something that my memory of it is that has a pretty different framing in the book, or at least it's a lot bigger deal in the book, and it <laughs> actually like justifies having the title of The Shining. But the 
Dick counsels. What what is the kid's name? Tony? Danny. Danny. Yes. Uh, can, counsels Danny, Doc, on how to use the Shining, and this is the first person that Danny has met who also has this talent, and they're sort of able to communicate non-verbally, or Dick is able to communicate non-verbally with Danny, and the it's the only little bit of mentorship that Danny really gets over the course of the movie and it's I think it kind of highlights why the movie is so confused um or one of the things that's so confusing about the movie is because it does this mentoring that happens sets you up to believe that Danny is going to be the protagonist of the movie but like I don't think the movie really has a protagonist or it doesn't it doesn't really have a very strong protagonist it sort of flip-flops between whether it's Danny or Wendy or Jack Torrance and it's just one of the things that I think for me made it feel a little emotionally ungrounded yeah it's a and I think that's part of the goal with this one um I I think it is important to note with Stanley Kubrick films there is a goal of like emotional ungrounding uh, in Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick films, he wants it to feel kind of cold and isolating, and that you're a little bit disconnected from the characters because that's a lot of the emotion he's going for. And I think that this uh, flipping between protagonists and kind of uh, leaving us imbalanced in whose story it is that we're that we're telling and whose actions it is that is driving the plot forward. Because of that, it's difficult for us to really ground ourselves in the mind of one of the characters, and it gives Mm -hmm. kind of this unsettling feeling that adds to the horror. I honestly think that's one of the most clever thing parts about the film, Uh, and I think it's I think that part is is really good use of these film techniques because it 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 accentuates the horror and brings out the emotions that Stanley Kubrick is going for. Yeah, that's a good point that that the lack of protagonist function is intentional. I'll have to do some thinking about that. I hadn't really hadn't really thought about that as an intentionality. I thought about it as something that was sort of lost in translation from book to movie. Although honestly, I don't remember the book well enough to remember like my memory of it is that Danny does have a little more agency, but I also remember that Jack is that it's a lot more ambiguous how much of it is Jack's innate evil and how much of it is the evil of the building taking over Jack and preying on what is bad within him. Whereas I think in the movie it's like 90% bad Jack and maybe 10% building. If it's not that, then I think it's really pretty unforgivable of dick's character in this scene to basically lie to danny and not tell him that the building tell him that the building is not bad but i don't think that's what you're supposed to think i think you are supposed to think that he is telling the truth and he's looking out for this kid who he sees as a kindred spirit well the 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 trick that i had when i was watching it is i definitely got the impression that this uh, hotel like had bad vibes it did not pass the vibe check 
Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, with Dick being there, Dick being such a friendly character and, you know, talking about uh, also having The Shining, um, I just got the impression that he wouldn't probably work there if and be there for so long if there weren't some good parts of this as well. And for me, that right. really set the stage for the film. You know, I'm not a person that's, uh, you know, a big believer in ghosts or, you know, supernatural things of that of that nature. And even growing up, like my ideas of what kind of supernatural stuff uh, might exist was always of like a positive nature. And this is part of my background. I grew up in a in a culture that that looked as looked at the idea of like a spirit and like the the any kind of spiritual essence that essence that someone might leave behind is always being a positive thing and the way that i look at it now you know uh, i don't really believe in that kind of supernatural stuff but i've always thought like if you know there was ghosts lying around if i was a ghost i would be a very friendly ghost and you know i wouldn't be out trying to murder people (laughs) because why you know i don't need to be into that kind of stuff and so i've never really seen this kind of idea as being inherently evil and I don't think mm-hmm. that Stanley Kubrick did as well. Um, I think that there's an interview where he talks about how he sees ghost stories as inherently positive. And that I kind of agree with. Like this idea that, you know, if if you're telling a story where there's some kind of essence of a person that persists after death, that that's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a, a negative thing. And... I think that's a little bit of what he's going for. But then Dick mentions that it kind of amplifies the stuff that is there. So as soon as you get Jack Torrance there and he has this, you know, uh, abusive and kind of authoritarian approach to everything that he does, all of that gets amplified very quickly by the location. I I think you wanted to talk about uh, one of the more problematic parts of this scene. Um, but before we do that, I do part of what makes that those long walk and talks and those long shots, both in this scene and then the one where Danny's riding the car all around the hotel, so effective and um, by all accounts was even more effective at the time was because this was one of the first movies to use a steady cam. And uh, so a steady cam is a contraption that was invented to separate the camera, the camera's movement from the movement of the photographer. So it allows someone to walk around with a camera and be very close the way they are in this movie, whether it's over the shoulder of Danny right behind him or walking backwards as a trio of actors walks towards you and um, it, it, without inter- introducing the shakiness that would happen that previously would have happened before this invention if you were trying to do that walk along and the previously if you wanted to do a steady moving shot People had to do it on rails or on a train or on a car or something that would not have the gait of a human. 
yeah t- typically the way that i've the the way that i've seen it is dollies or in cranes that people are moving the camera around so you can kind of t- t- look at three different ways that this kind of happens and one is the dolly or grain shot uh that you see and we mm-hmm. saw a bunch of those in uh north by northwest with the movement where those was happening and then you have the shaky cam which people are probably very familiar with there's a lot of uh, films that do this where you have a handheld cam- camera that someone is moving and trying to shoot and it's shaking with the way the camera the person holding the camera is moving and so the steady cam isolates the movement of the camera from the movement of the operator and it holds it and there's like you know a gyroscope or whatever kind of function and there's a lot of different ways you make a steady cam and it holds the camera in a balanced kind of level place while the operator can move like upstairs or downstairs or around corners and the camera stays isolated in its position as you're moving yeah it's really uh, it is not something that I had thought about prior to researching this movie, but then I went and watched a bunch of videos on it, and I'll put some in the show notes, and it's really cool. It, it made me view watching movies differently. And, you know, you can tell as you're watching this that the Steadicam it was a new invention for them because they use it mm-hmm. constantly <laughs> in this film. It is just over and over and over, and you're like, okay, okay, we get the point at this point, so... Uh, it seems like they, and the way they designed the set, I think was deliberately to maximize the use of the Steadicam, how we talked about all those sets in interlocking the way that they did, you know, it's, it's clear they wanted to maximize their use of this technology. And I mean, honestly, they did a very good job with that. The cinematography is amazing in this film. And the set is so cool. I mean, they just build like an entire hotel. I mean, I don't think it's like functional the way a hotel is, but it's, God, it's well, huge. it's definitely not not functional because uh, a lot of the doors lead to nowhere. Like it's a uh, yeah. as you see them going through the set. There's a behind behind the scenes video that uh, we'll link in the show notes because it's you'll get a lot of the sense of this. But you know, you come around a staircase and there's just a drop off and all kinds of different things. And so mm-hmm. and they have their place where they get like their coffee and they read their scripts. That's kind of off to the side, on right built right into the set where the hotel is right next to them and all of that stuff. And I don't know, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> Why don't you talk about what you wanted to talk about for so this? The biggest scene. problematic issue with this one, this is a trope that shows up over and over again, uh, which Spike Lee, famous director, one of my favorite directors, uh, coined in two thousand one. He called this the magical negro, which is the idea of a character, a black character who is uh, a supporting character to a white protagonist and usually has some kind of supernatural or mystical powers, but sometimes just like special insight. Uh, You know, they're very good at whatever thing it is that they do. Uh, And their purpose in the story is to train uh, or prepare a white protagonist or to get them out of trouble in some way. And... It's a, a, a stereotype that pops up a lot, especially from the 50s going forward, uh, a very common stereotype. And when Spike Lee talked about this, one of the things that he talked about in particular was its use in novels and films, novels that were written by Stephen King and adaptations of novels uh, uh, by Stephen King. So it's a very common thing that shows up. Uh, and you see all kinds of different places uh, where this character pops up. Dick Halloran is a very famous one. Uh, people like uh, Uncle Remus or Oda Mae Brown in Ghost or uh, Morgan Freeman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, or even like Rafiki in The Lion King. These kinds of characters that mm-hmm. are uh, designed, these black or black-coated characters that are designed to 
teach the protagonist some kind of mystical or supernatural or highly specialized skill and then kind of, you know, serve their story. Even uh, in The Matrix that we looked at before, previously in this season, you have Morpheus fulfills sort of this kind of role. Oh, I was thinking in The Matrix it was the Oracle. You you got a a buy one, get one free deal in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that makes it so much of a bummer in this movie is, as compared to The Matrix, which you can still criticize The Matrix for it, but Dick Halloran is literally the only black person in this movie. And so that's the only representation. But on top of that, he's also treated extremely poorly in this movie for really no reason at all when you see him in his home there are a couple external shots of him with or not external shots but shots of his room uh, with pornographic photos of women which I don't like I don't think that's a problem but it definitely seemed like there was a point of view of like look how dirty this black man is you know that sucked <laughs> yeah yeah there's a, to, to to put it bluntly there, there is a bit of um you know just racism on display in this film and the way that it treats the character and you know again i haven't read the book uh so i can't speak to the way the character is treated there but you know it's a problem and this film kind of hinges on that character only to have the character murdered in service of the the white characters later on and you know, it's, it's a problem. I bumped up against it quite a, quite a bit as I was watching it, and it definitely detracted from my ability to enjoy the film. Yeah, so again, my memory of it is a little hazy, um, but I, I mean, look, Stephen King is a white person, and so he is, like, obvi- he's one of the reasons this trope was coined. Like, he... It's a problem for him, but so I'm not going to say that it's not. But my memory is that he at least has more function and more utility in the book. He doesn't die at the end of the book. The three of them go off and live together. And certainly in the sequel, which I have read a lot more recently, the Danny is extremely grateful and talks very highly of the things that the him being a father figure to him in the in-between period between The Shining and Doctor Sleep. So that there just really was no reason to kill him. And I think the actor who had played Dick Halloran, who I wrote down, Scatman Crothers? Yes. I can't read my own damn handwriting. Yeah. He didn't actually know that his character was going to die. It wasn't in the script, and it was a decision that Stanley Kubrick made late in the process. And so when he saw the final cut of the film, he was pretty mad. And I don't know, it just sucks, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's a, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a really rough one. Um, I will say that with Stephen King, there's a lot of criticism of Stephen King and this trope. 
mm-hmm. from what I have seen of Stephen King in the past handful of years, so like the past six years, uh, it appears to me that Stephen King has taken that criticism seriously. You know, if you're one of these people that wants to jump in and say, you know, uh, you shouldn't take it that way. The, Stephen King didn't intend it that way. He's taken this criticism seriously and in interviews where he's discussed the topic and has agreed that it is a problematic trope. Uh, and that he has in particular had a problem with this trope and contributed to the problematic discourse behind this trope. So, you know, Stephen King is is right with you on, on uh, right with us on thinking this trope is problematic. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's an issue in this film. It's a, a trope that would be very nice to see disappear. But honestly, I got to say, it does not seem to be trending that way because I have seen many films released even recently where this shows up still like over and over again. And that'll sort of segue us into the next scene that we wanted to talk about because even though our buddy Dick is not present at this scene, there <laughs> he doesn't escape uh, not being treated well. Um, so this is your scene. So why don't you introduce it? To yeah, us? this is this scene is so complicated for me because mm-hmm. up until the moment that you're referring to just now, this was my favorite scene in the movie. They, mm-hmm. So uh, Jack Torrance, there are two different scenes where he goes to the bar in the gold room. In the first one, he goes and there is a bartender, some kind of mystical bartender that he's talking to, uh, that he gets a drink that apparently doesn't exist. But also, you know, there's this moment in this scene that stuck out to me so well where Jack Torn says, oh, I would sell my soul for a drink of beer. And <laughs> immediately the bartender appears and like gives him some alcohol. And then the descent through the rest of the film kind of hinges on that moment. And then later on in the film, as he's, you know, quote unquote, struggling with his writing, uh, he wanders into this and there is a full 1920s party going on that he wanders through. And it is so gorgeously shot, this film, this scene, and it has so much depth and the camera scans all the way across this room. And the the composition is so good, and the costumes are wonderful, and uh, again, the depth, you see how, how long this room is, and the detail that's put into this set. Uh, and then he has a conversation with the bartender, and then wanders into the restroom afterwards where he meets a former caretaker slash butler that is there, who then, you know, talks to him, tells him that... Uh, I can't remember the whole conversation that he has, but tells him, you know, some information that he learns about the hotel and the former uh, occupants and caretakers of the hotel. And then tells him that Dick Halloran is uh, going to be coming and interfering with what's happening and very clearly uses the N-word in this. And then Jack and Nicholson repeats it back to him. And so this word is used multiple times in a very clear, very obviously intended to be offensive way in this scene. And, you know, that's the way the scene kind of plays out. And there's so much that I loved right up into that moment. And it's just a really, I don't know, tricky scene to look at. Yeah. And it, man, there is, this is a conversation I think, I, I'm guessing you've had it a lot um, because you're an English teacher, sort of the 
n-word as written by white people and i've also been uh party to it some amount as well because there there have been a lot of conversations surrounding it in is used in assassins uh john wilkes booth says it and of course it's historically accurate um and john wilkes booth probably would have used that word but there's the conversations that i've seen especially by the black people in my feed talking about it is like the when it's used by white people in this way and especially when it's spoken by white people then really the intended audience of the shock factor of using this specific slur is also intended for white audiences. It's very much written um, and performed for a white gaze in this case. Yes. And the like there are defenders of this scene online who it's like, well, the scene takes place like we're going back to the 20s, so of course it's accurate that someone in the 20s would use this uh which fine, sure, but the I think the intended effect on white audiences is that that then it like it's just a heightened level of shock it's like oh this is really bad like oh they really used the worst word possible but my understanding from the black people that i've listened to and certainly not all black people i mean i don't want to act like they're a monolith but um the people who i've listened to have objected to this usage is that they don't experience it as shock value. They experience it as violence, and it makes it harder to watch and to experience things um, for them. And that's something that I've taken to heart. And as a result, it makes it harder. Like, it's not... I don't experience it as violence myself in the same way because I don't have that experience. But it certainly makes it like, then I, I'm going to bump on it because I have listened to them and I have tried to hear them and try to understand and it makes it harder to enjoy it and it takes me out of the scene. Yeah, for me, you know, as an, I, I am an English teacher who teaches American literature, um, including things that I have taught like, um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn. Mm-hmm. I don't teach any of these anymore, but, you know, it's a... This is a word that has that I have come across in a professional setting and had to think about a lot uh, over the years, and and the way that it's used in art and all of those things. And for me, I just one of the things I always want to ask is like, why do these writers and why do these performers feel such a compelling need to use this word? Like, why is it that like I have to use? this word this is the only word that i can possibly use and you know i get there's a lot of a lot of cultural baggage that goes with it but it just makes me uh, suspicious of of people that that insist this has to be the word that is used and you know there are situations where uh, where this uh, word has been used in ways that audiences uh, feel like it was appropriate to communicate the level of violence that is being portrayed. But in this film, I don't think that's what Stanley Kubrick was trying to do, and that makes it worse, is that he was just trying to be like, oh, look, this guy's a real racist. He uses the N-word, and so, you know, you can't trust him. 
But really, the issue is, you know, he's... All of these characters have a white have a racism problem. Uh, the entire film has a racism problem. All of the people that work at the hotel uh, have racist problem racism problem. They're all the real racists, even though they aren't necessarily using this word. And the idea that that word in particular is the sum total of racism when there's so much other violence that is happening, uh, terrible mistreatment and microaggressions and violence against uh, the only black character in this film. I, I find it kind of, it's just very off-putting and absurd that this is used in this scene in the way that it is. Yeah, and I think, because I went back and rewatched it before the podcast, and on the rewatch I was expecting it, and I think one of the things that makes it a lot worse is Jack Nicholson's delivery of this line is not... I think a realistic delivery of this line would be one that indicates uh, like shock or disgust or fear that uh, like I think that would have been accurate to what they were trying to portray. But instead, I really got the sense from Jack Nicholson that the prevail and maybe I'm projecting, I don't know, but the prevailing sense I got from him was, oh man, I'm going to get to say the N-word on, on screen. And isn't that edgy? And look at me, a consummate actor. Yeah. And I, like, I didn't feel like he was in the moment for that scene. I, and yeah, it just makes, makes well, it worse. The other thing that I think about with this is Stanley Kubrick's directing style where, you know, he would shoot, like minimum 35 takes of scenes and sometimes upwards of 100 scenes. Mm -hmm. And so I can only imagine that they were sitting here for like days going over this scene with Jack Nicholson just like trying so many different ways of approaching this word. And I, I think you're you're accurate in this, uh, you know, analysis of the scene. It, it feels like the people that were involved in putting this here – they felt like, oh, look how edgy we're being by putting this in rather than actually having, I don't know, like a real narrative purpose or anything that they're trying to do with this word. And so, I don't know, it, it really took me out of the film. Like, I had to pause after this because I was just like, oh, great. You know, this is what this <laughs> this is what this scene is doing. Awesome. And we're going to have to talk about this. And then it kind of, like, disappears uh, that what they're trying to do here going forward uh but it definitely was i don't know i bounced off of that one really hard yeah absolutely as a bit of a lighter note from this scene uh the the so the reason they go into the bathroom is because the caretaker is a waiter who spills drink on spills his tray of drinks on jack torrance and the drink that he spills is advocat which Look, Matt's not going to give you the alcohol information on this podcast, so it falls to me. Uh, and Advocat is a traditional Dutch liqueur, uh, which is pretty similar to eggnog, and it's made out of a combination of eggs, sugar, and brandy. So just in case you were curious why it was such a concern that it would stain the jacket, it's because it has uh, eggs in it. Interesting. I haven't tried it, so I, I have no 
no review on, on uh, it sounds Kong. hideous but i do yeah. kind of want to go get yeah. it i don't know that, that sounds gross to me i'm not a big eggnog person either so like i don't know i i would not want to drink this yeah i'm not big on eggnog but i suppose i like it fine sure sure i don't know i'll try anything <laughs> So, yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to say about... Oh, the other thing I did want to say, and this was a pretty big... In general, they toned down a lot of the ghosts of this movie. That was a deliberate choice by Stanley Kubrick. And it's pretty ambiguous how much of the people that Jack Torrance is seeing are in his head and how many are real ghosts that he's seeing i think the movie leans pretty heavily into the implication that they're in his head they are not real projected by the building or by the history but the the book is pretty solid in the other direction i'm i'm pretty sure i remember that there's a scene after he's been to the bar and there's you know, he's surprised. It's like, oh, there's alcohol here. That's impossible. And Wendy smells the alcohol on his breath. So it's it's clear that there was some, that he actually imbibed. Yeah. And I, I think they fight about it. She's like, how did you, how did you sneak alcohol in here? And he was like, I don't know. It was just here. I'm sure I'm misremembering yeah, some of that, but. The, Whereas the yeah, film makes a point. They're man, like, yeah, there's no creepy. alcohol on this on the premises, so you won't be able to get a drink, sorry. And then he goes back later and there's a bartender with a whole bunch of alcohol, and so that was kind of weird. So Yeah, I mean, the book does the same thing. They make it clear there's no alcohol on the premises, which is why the fact that she's able to smell alcohol on his breath is like, what is going oh, interesting, on here? Interesting. Uh, one of the things that I noticed yeah. in this scene, and I don't know if this is... Uh, I had to look this up afterwards to see if this was deliberate, but all of the times that Jack interacts with a ghost, there is a reflective surface that he is, like, talking to or looking at mm. uh, every every time he interacts with one of these figures. And so that supports this idea that he's imagining all of these things. You know, there's a mirror behind the bar. There's a mirror in the bathroom. There's a mirror in room 237 when he goes up there. All of these dis- different situations, this idea that it's himself and his own psyche that he is interacting with in these occasions. Yeah, I think I think that is intentional. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to say about this scene, or should we Let's move, move on. on? All right, the next scene that I wanted to talk about is, and this is probably my favorite scene in the movie. This was the one that I thought was most affecting, and this is the scene where Shelley Duvall goes into the big cavernous room where jack has been working once again an absolutely stunning set just like oh yeah for sure huge and she by this point she knows he's bad news but she finally takes a look at what he's been writing and this has been a thing for the entire movie right he just won't let her look at this thing that he's been writing and one of the reasons he gets so upset at her is like when she says she wants to leave is he's like, I'm so I'm working on this thing here and you just don't care about the book that I'm working on about. I'm finally have a chance to do something and she finds it. And it is just pages and pages of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And oh man, there, I think it's probably the scaredest I got watching it was her just leafing 
through these pages and just seeing page after page. And it goes on for an uncomfortably long time because I think they really want you to like think about the fact that he was just sitting in this room for eight hours a day just typing this sentence over and over and over again in different permutations. Like sometimes it's indented. Sometimes these words are capitalized. Sometimes yeah. like it's not even immaculate. Sometimes there's two spaces between the L's and all. And it is, oh, it is so cool. And we haven't talked about it yet, but one of the things that they do for this movie is there's very little, if any, original music in the film. Um, this is something that he also did for 2001, A Space Odyssey, was made a lot of use of classical classical works. And it really gives a sense of familiarity to the music, I think, that it's like, I'm pretty sure I've heard this before, because a lot of them are not super well-known tunes. Like, you'd have to be tunes uh you'd have to be a pretty big classical music lover to to know a lot of them but it uses a piece by Bartok for believe piano percussion and something else uh this particular piece is Paul Morphia by Christoph Penderecki and all there I found a list online that sort of notes which piece of music is used in each scene and it just seems like such a massive headache for the poor music team who had to go in and fit all this music perfectly but really I think they're the heroes of this movie because it just fits so well and this has a bunch of like high clashy string uh stuff as she's sorting through the papers and it just, yeah it worked it works really really well yeah one of the things that i texted you as this was going on is that i didn't think this movie would be scary at all without the music but the music is oh no you know, definitely not whew, the music is a lot um and the only times that it really you know that i felt my heart rate going up was all music related things where the music was going on and i was mm-hmm. like geez i don't find what's on screen scary at all why am i doing this and I'm, uh, oh it's because you know that music is extremely you know uh it's just done so well. One of the things, you know, <laughs> when she pulls off this manuscript, it looks like it's around 600 pages of just typed mm-hmm. on a typewriter. Uh, the And she flips through it, and it, it's so long as she's as she's going through. That that scene definitely was, you know, it's just, I realize he's that, he's that kind of guy, you know? He's a... Uh, I think the intent was that when you see this, you're supposed to think, oh, he's lost it. Like, he's lost touch with reality. For me, I saw it, and I was like, oh, he's the kind of writer that, you know, sits down, he doesn't have an idea, and he just kind of keeps typing. And he just did this the whole time, and he's just an asshole, right? It's just, like, he... Mm. uh, This is one of the things that I always do when I get stuck, is I will sit and just, like, type out just whatever is coming to mind and keep typing until I find... Uh, the words that I'm looking for until I find the story or whatever it might be. And I believe that Stephen King is kind of a, uh, follows this kind of mold of writing. Um, and I just didn't see him. This is him like losing touch with reality. 
uh, I didn't find it particularly scary either at this moment. I just thought, okay, he's, you know, he's so self-absorbed and so self-focused uh, that he actually sees this process of him trying to break, break through his writer's block by writing the same phrase over and over as being a productive use of his time. This is his work. Yeah, it's just his process. Yeah, it's his process. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what a yeah, jerk. And so at that moment I was like, oh man, this guy, this guy. Um, but he's also knows that she's not going to react favorably to this. He knows that this is uh, mm-hmm. something, oh, what's the word, that a transgressive that he is doing, that she's not going to look at this as being uh, serious or being a good use of time because it's the thing he's been avoiding. And he gets so mad when he sees that she's found it. Yeah. Uh, the the other part of this scene that I wanted to talk about is this is also where she, Jack Torrance, back, backs her up yeah. the stairs as she has the baseball bat and she's sort of swinging at him and telling him to get away. And this scene, so you had talked about how the Stanley Kubrick did so many shots, uh, production like they did this film with a very tiny crew and so they were able to do a ton of shots for this movie and in some places it's like you can see the payoff there there's the one scene early in the movie where the Danny is getting inspected by the doctor and there's a few close-ups on his face and you can see his eyes go back and forth where he's like checking in with his mom before he says what he's going to say and watching it like you know it's a child actor but he does an exceptionally good job with it and I just could see the take after take after take of like whoever it is like follow the follow your my pen with your eyes for this take and they were just able to get it specifically meticulously exactly what they wanted but then on the flip side of that there's scenes like this where at least according to the stories they this scene they did 137 different takes of it oh my gosh i'm sorry that's whoa i was guessing like 100 but 137 is just that is whoa sorry that caused me actual pain uh sorry (laughs) it's so many and it really seems like it was probably not really necessary like i think that based on the stories it was like stanley kubrick was trying to get shelly shelly duvall shelly winters shelly duvall uh stanley kubrick was trying to get shelly duvall into this like terrified frame of mind so he was like trying to essentially torture her to get her into method acting so that they could get a legitimately terrified take of her for this scene and when i read that i was i was just like man am i glad i did not know that before i watched the movie because it is just yeah it's reprehensible like it hopefully well it probably still does happen today uh probably still would happen today but honestly happens a lot today still uh yeah uh hopefully it's less prevalent Um, 
than it than it would have been 41 there's a lot more people that are more critical Um, of it now than they they were yes it's something that people are being more vocal about yeah that's but it is very prevalent at this time period in fact one of the people that has uh mentioned this film in particular but also stanley kubrick and this method was bill pope who was the cinematographer on on the matrix uh, and he was very critical of mm-hmm. uh, this film in particular and Stanley Kubrick's process. One of the things that I noticed with just looking into uh, Shelley Duvall interviews and seeing the process is, for one thing, they kept the set really cold. And so, like, it was cold. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in these, like, heavy jackets and coats. And even Jack Nicholson is, like, in coats. Uh, and the kid is, like, bundled up. And the only person that's not in, like, warm gear is Shelly Duvall so she's cold she has to carry that kid all over the place so she was carrying you know uh, I don't know how big that kid is like uh, 50-60 pounds and like having to haul him all over the place so just a physically incredibly demanding job that she was doing that was dramatically more physically demanding than what was happening with Jack Nicholson and then every single time you see Stanley Kubrick interact with them in this, like, behind the scenes, everything that Jack Nicholson does, Stanley Kubrick's like, oh, that was wonderful. That's golden, you know, perfect. Let's try it again this way. Hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. What a genius. Yeah. And then everything that Shelley Duvall says, he's like, oh, that was, you know, I can't believe you're here. Like, you're wasting everybody's time. Uh, what are you even doing? I don't know why we, hi- you know, got you for this thing. Uh, and that kind of, like, essentially verbal abuse. And it, it feels like the the point that you made that uh, that it's trying to get her into this like frame of mind and like elicit essentially i think stanley kubrick would say a real response uh i think that they got that response by essentially like um doing to her what the character jack does in the film like actually enacting abuse on her throughout this throughout this film for months at a time just reprehensible there there's no excuse and <laughs> treat people like humans yeah that's a good idea i agree with that, that statement do you have anything else you want to say about this no scene? it's a it is i mean the camera work is amazing on this scene it, that part is certainly true mm-hmm. so all right let's talk about our last scene here we got the the hedge, yeah, the maze. hedge maze so um the way the climax of this comes all together um i, I thought was you know, actually a clever way to end the film. There's this hedge maze that was established at the beginning of the film that exists right outside the hotel. Uh, there's several moments where they're kind of comparing the hotel with a maze itself, especially during that walk and talk from earlier in the film where they say, you know, this hotel is like a maze. I might have to leave breadcrumbs as I'm going through this. Uh, and then you have all this snow that's on the ground. Um, and uh, Danny ends up uh, luring jack out of the building chasing after him and he runs into this hedge maze and he is leaving tracks in the snow as he runs through the different places uh and then he reaches this point where he doubles back on his own footsteps and then hides behind a hedge while jack is chasing after him and then as soon as jack passes him he runs back the way that he came uh in order to lose jack and jack gets lost in this hedge maze as danny runs away and escapes and i just love the way that this this climax resolved the scene ends with with jack torrance freezing and just you know there's this image of him just completely frozen that i find hilarious and then you see later it pans over and shows you this picture that's in the in the hotel that shows um jack torrance jack nicholson's face was in the hotel on a picture 
from the 1920s. And so that's kind of how the film wraps up. Yeah, it's one of those moments, uh, we talked about it with Toy Story, where the movie was ahead of where I was. But I felt like I was like, with the movie or a little ahead of the movie, because I was like, well, he can't escape in a maze with snow tracks. But then, yeah, the backing up through his own tracks and outwitting his his dad. Yeah, it was really clever. And uh, it's a complete movie invention, by the way, the Yep. Um, Jack Torrance blows up in the boiler room in the book. So, way to go, Stan! Yeah. Stan That's, the man. Uh, that was definitely uh, a well a well put together scene, and the steady cam just makes this scene even possible. And yeah, it would wouldn't be possible without yeah, it. It's a it pull, it's pulled off quite well. The other thing that I find fascinating about this is there's a long history of like mythology around mazes trapping like uh, supernatural forces there's a lot of cultures that use mazes mm. in like they'll they'll put together mazes in um in like the decorations that go outside their house or the the decorate or they'll put like little rock mazes around different places and the idea is that those mazes that like evil spirits will get trapped inside of them uh in fact there was uh um norse vikings they would have these rock mazes that they would set up and before they went on a like a viking trip they would walk through the maze because the idea that the evil spirits would follow you and walk with you through the maze but then they couldn't figure out their way their way out and they'd be trapped there Hmm. and i think it's pretty clear that this is an homage to that kind of thing uh this idea that uh, an evil spirit can get trapped in a maze and be there forever and in my viewing and my interpretation of the film, it seems to me like that's the idea behind the hotel. Like the purpose behind the hotel is that as a maze and as this hedge maze, it is a place that naturally traps these, these evil forces. And there's just a long history of these forces getting trapped inside the maze and being unable to find their way out. Cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. In retrospect, doing the hedge maze is it makes a lot of sense for the movie. I'm sure in 1980, the animals from the topiary coming alive would have just been cheesy yeah, and horrible. Sure, so, 13-year-old Zach was, I guess, a little less intelligent than Stanley Kubrick in his third-to-last film. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about the hedge maze, or should we move towards uh, cleanup? Uh, that's here? all I've got for that. Oh, so I wanted to ask you, did you... You must have heard, like, the Rad Ram, Rad Ram before seeing this yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure. Were you, you were yeah. familiar with that? And did you know what it I meant? I mean, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's a, okay, but, but I gotta say, I've never found it particularly mysterious. I think the first time anyone, like, that I ever saw, like, Red Rum or, like, heard someone say it, I was like, oh, that's murder backwards. Like, I don't know. For me, it, it, mm-hmm. it's never been, like, a mystery. Uh, and I saw the way that he was like saying it over and over and like it was written, uh, it's written like backwards, but I don't know. In my mind, it just felt kind of ridiculous. Like, I mean, that's just murder backwards. How could, how are they not figuring this out? Like, can they not read backwards? I don't know. I, I thought, it, I found it kind of funny. Yeah. I assumed even if you didn't know, you would have figured it out pretty quickly as a, as a linguist. When I read this book when I was like 11 or 12, I did not figure it out. So it I was love it. That's cool great. Yeah. And and I, I, I'm able to like recall that feeling in the movie when the camera zooms in on it. And it's like, it's still a cool reveal to me, even though obviously I know yeah. it's coming. Yeah. 
Yeah, for for me, it's really easy though. Like, uh, I, I wonder if there might be a little bit of like aphantasia involved in that because for me, when I see words on a page, it's very easy for me to just like manipulate them in my head as if I had letters that right. I can just yeah, move I cannot. Yeah, that that's impossible for me. Yeah, I have other stuff for cleanup, but you can do some of yours. Yeah. If so you want. one of the things I wanted to just mention in cleanup, there's this scene, the room two thirty seven, you know, kind of like an infamous scene, and. <laughs> Uh, we had chatted mm-hmm. about this, like, you know, this is uh, one of the first instances on the podcast that we have dealt with definitely, like, full-on nudity in the pod- in the podcast. And, yeah, I don't know, the scene is weird, and I think that a lot of people really like that scene. It's not, like, titillating or anything, uh, but I do find the, a theme throughout Stanley Kubrick's work and a lot of other people from the time period that essentially reduces women to body parts that are, you know, not like a person. Mm-hmm. And this film definitely does some of that. And I didn't I didn't love that either. No, there's definitely a sense... I don't know the history of, like, filming naked people. Like, I don't know when it started to become something that they were allowed to do for wide-release pictures. But there definitely is a sense from, like, Stanley Kubrick's films of this is something that is new and we're allowed to do it and so i'm gonna do it even if it like it feels like it's there for shock value rather than any particular to serve the story in any sort of way yeah i mean this is after hayes code and the hayes code kind of ended in the late 60s i think and so it's around 10 years that people had kind of been using uh it using nudity more in films so i i don't think that's you know far off but even before that before the pre-hays code time there was a lot of nudity on films like before the 30s it was just i mean this is one of the first mm. things that people did once they had the ability to make film is uh, taking naked pictures which i don't think should be surprising to people no that makes and a there's a sense. long history <laughs> even in that time period of uh using the camera in a way that essentially reduces women to body parts and you see this especially in the film what's this other film the one with all the naked people eyes wide, wide shut where uh the women in that film are like they have masks over their faces they're essentially reduced entirely yeah. to just body parts without faces and this film does a little bit of that and then it has some weird body horror stuff with like uh, the old woman and kind of the rotting flesh on the nudity and things like that. And uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that found that very disturbing and like scary or frightening or whatever it was for me, my, my film film experience primed me to just see, Oh, they're reducing the, the women to body parts in this one. And then uh, portraying the women's nudity as grotesque uh, versus like the clothed body mm-hmm. of the man. The other thing I want to talk about is this, opening sequence there i guess it's really the title title sequence with the car driving through they filmed it in montana i think and it just looks oh it looks so good some of these aerial shots and there's that one specific aerial shot where the helicopter drives up and then right by the car and i i was like yeah, they, I, they did use a helicopter to do it. See, I don't understand how it possibly could have been safe. Um, and I guess there were some other helicopter shots that were used where, or that were made that didn't get used where the 
helicopter crew was like, hey, we risked our lives to get those shots, and then they didn't even get oh, used geez. in the movie, so that yeah, kind of sucks. Rough. And I was like, was this safe, or was it just something they did? I don't know how the codes were back in 1980, but... I think it's probably just something they did, which is kind of the the way it works with Stanley Kubrick films. Yeah, um, but boy, oh boy, is it is it a cool shot. And the whole thing is scored... Did you note it? Did you recognize this music at the top? Uh, no, I didn't. I, well, I, I might have recognized it in the moment, but I can't remember it at all. So, yeah, the first thing I wrote down, like the first three notes of the film, I was like, oh, do, did they base this off of the DAC array? And because oh. it starts with basically the DAC array theme yeah, makes sense. Um, with low, I don't even know what instrument it is. And yep, sure enough, it. I think they re recorded it. I don't think it's an actual recording but they it's based on the Berlioz DACRA from Symphony Fantastique and yeah. it's pretty cool cool yeah that's interesting so uh what else you got? well you know unfortunately we're gonna have to talk about another racist stereotype that uh, that pops up in this film and oh, is also yes. very common in uh in Stephen King films which is the idea of you know like an Indian burial ground and this film really leans into that a lot there's so much like native american indigenous motifs throughout the hotel especially and you know there's been a lot of people online that have written about like oh this film is secretly about like the history of like genocide of indigenous people and is making like this progressive message about it and i think that is wishful fantasizing and just like I don't think that bears out in the text of the film. And the the stereotype in actual usage is quite harmful. And the way that it kind of exists and the power that it drives is from othering indigenous people and making them seem like evil or mysterious or supernatural in some way. And it's been a trope that's been used over and over and over in so many different cases and has permeated a lot of... Um, a lot of I don't want to say pop culture like uh, urban legends and myths. Been to so many pe- places where people are like, "Oh, did you know that this is on an Indian bur- burial ground?" And it's just upsetting. And all of the all of the indigenous people that I am you know close with, that's not the way they see spirits in the afterlife anyway. And so it doesn't make sense as a storytelling technique from that perspective. So that also bothered me in this film. Yeah, and just just textually, like, they basically laugh off the idea that they had to fight off uh, indigenous people who were mad that they were building a hotel on their ground. And, like, it's just very clear there in the text that they're like, how horrible it was that we had to do that you know those crazy (laughs) those crazy native americans yeah it's weird it i don't think it serves the story very well and you know i'd be glad if this trope was not used anymore yep definitely okay and the last cleanup thing that i had was this this very famous here's johnny moment at the end of the movie and (laughs) this uh, this was impro- Im- improvised by Jack Nicholson on set, and apparently they Stanley Kubrick had to be convinced to keep it in the film because he didn't understand the reference. But 
I'm like kind of similar to Stanley Kubrick. The only way that I know what this is referencing is because after I watched it, I asked my dad, like, why does he say that? If uh, I had watched it by myself, I didn't watch it with my parents. They were uh, gone or something. But I asked him, like, why does he say that? His name's Jack. I don't think Johnny is a like derivative of Jack. And he was like, oh, it's a reference to the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. Right? That's what it's a reference yes, it to, right? Yeah. And it just makes no sense to me. Like, I think it's, it's so weird. weird. It takes me out of the film. I'm like, why Why did they let this stay in? But it's become famous, so I guess it was effective for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's iconic, and this is yeah. the thing you see, like, all the time. And when I had told yeah. people that we were doing The Shining, they're like, oh, the, uh, there's a scene that and that's gonna be really scary where he gets through the wall and i'm like okay okay like i know what that is i've seen that gif like a bajillion times and you know even heard the here's johnny and all that kind of stuff it's i know that scene's coming up so it was it was impossible to me to watch this and not have all of that in my mind as it came up so i don't know that was probably the least terrifying part of the entire movie to me but whatever yeah. you know it's fine it's fine one thing that is kind of cool is they did the he did actually chop the door yeah. like that was real he used to do like some firefighting or something and so he had experience chopping down doors yeah yeah though i do want to uh, blow your mind just a little bit jack Ooh, the name okay. jack is a diminutive of johnny of like the name john which is, yeah which is oh, really? weird because like you know John is a very short name, and Jack technically is there. You pronounce more. <laughs> you pronounce. You make more sounds in the word Jack than you do in the word John. But Jack is considered a diminutive for John. For example, Jack Kennedy, JFK, the, uh, was often called Jack Kennedy, but mm -hmm. his name is John. And so you see this all over the place: uh, the name Jack being substituted for John. Oh well, I guess I learned, and maybe. Uh... A few of our listeners also learned. Or maybe they're all just like, wow, you idiot. <laughs> well, it's also a diminutive for James and Jacques. Uh, so, you know, it's a, and Jacob. So, uh, who knows? You know, who knows? I don't know. It's a weird name. Language, right? It's language. It's weird. Do you have anything else for cleanup? I do cleanup? not have anything else for cleanup. All right. So, that'll do it for The Shining. Thanks, as always for tuning in and if you would like to give us any feedback we would love to hear from you you can shoot us a message on twitter i am at zvazda z-v-a-z-d-a and matt is o-r-a-m-w o-r-a-y-m-w yeah and that's a great place if you are uh you know just wanting to tweet us some stream of conscious stuff as you listen to the pod or you know just say hey i really liked the show or hey i hated the show you know any of those super easy you can get in touch with us there and then if you want to write us something a little longer form you can shoot us an email at podcast stream it just those three words podcast stream it no underscores no periods no nothing at gmail.com and as always or not as always i guess this is just the second time but a shout out to our good buddy David Stewart, Estoriel, who has been our beta listener since the beginning and also has been helping us out with a lot of our editing recently. So we really appreciate that. Much. And then next week, our fifth, fifth, nope, sixth episode for HBO. No, fifth. 
I don't know. I don't remember anymore. We're going to be going back to 2005 and watching Hitch. So it's been a little heavier, a little older the last couple weeks, and we'll have something, you know, that's uh, less than two decades old and, uh, as I understand it, is a rom-com. So hopefully a little a little lighter fare if you're watching along at home with us. And that's a movie that Matt has seen numerous times and I have Yes, this seen. is one of the films that my whole, the whole purpose of this podcast has been to force Zach to watch films that I love that he's never seen. And that's one of them. So Oh, every, every season has Every has season one has of one of those and this is the one. Okay, so I think that's actually our episode five. And I just lied at the beginning of this podcast when I said this was season two, episode five. This is season two, episode four. So if anyone made it this far, then... They got the correction. <laughs> Show notes are not infallible, apparently. Do you have a closing question? So my closing question. This film, you know, takes place in this beautiful hotel that's, you know, this fantastic place to visit. So my question is, what is the best hotel experience that you have had? Oh, the best hotel experience I have had. I think it has to be when we we took a trip to Miami and Mary was there on work, but the work hotel that she was getting put up in was not very nice. But then I went down a little later to meet her and we stayed a couple extra days and we we ended up getting this really great deal on a hotel that looked out on the ocean, uh, just like, had a balcony, spectacular view, and then uh, also had like a rooftop pool and rooftop hot tub. And it was sort of like, uh, it sort of seemed like it was like, some of them were hotel rooms and some of them were apartments, but it was just very nice. And it's nice to be in Miami and have a balcony and be able to look out on the ocean. You know? I love it. Yeah, it sounds great. My experience, you know, a little bit similar, though a very different place. I went, I stayed one time at a hotel in Puerto Varas, uh, in the uh, right on the edge of Lago Janquiwe, um, which is a big lake that's right next to the Osorno volcano, like this huge, gigantic volcano in southern Chile, um, in the Janquiwe region. And the hotel is right on the edge of the lake. And our hotel room opened up and like these huge floor to ceiling windows that you could open up and just like step out uh, right up to the edge of the lake from the hotel room. And this massive volcano that, you know, it was summertime and you still about 40% of the way down that volcano is covered with snow. It was, you know, an incredible site and an incredible place to stay. Oh, that sounds great. It's just beautiful. My question for you is a lot less optimistic. So if you were doing the job that Jack Torrance had, so let's assume that modern times, but you're going to get locked in this building for five months. What... And we're going to say no internet, because I think that's one of the things that, like, puts this movie in its time. Sure. <laughs> the, the, the internet service is not going to work to this building. What is the thing that you think would be hardest for you to live without? Five months of your life. I don't know. See, that's one of the things I was thinking, is that I don't think that would be hard for me at all to do that, like give me a handful of books 
I'm good, like golden. Um, just sit down and read through that whole thing. Uh, if I didn't have any books to read, uh, and I didn't have like games to play, like board games or card games or things like that, that's where I would start to kind of lose it. Yeah, I mean, I think the assumption is you'd be able to bring books. Yeah, but you couldn't. You wouldn't have access to like an e-book, an e-reader. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. So, so you'd only have access to what you have in your suitcase. Yeah, I'll, I'll pack my suitcase. I don't know. I've my list of books to read. I can pack all these things in. Um, and the other thing is, the fridge that they are stocked with is so stacked. But what they're not going to have is fresh vegetables. And so I think that's my answer. Is and th- that's mm, one of the things yeah. that came up for me in the movie. I was like where they're going to get scurvy how are they going to do this and then he's like and we have all these fruits and vegetables in cans and i was like oh okay that's the answer but also disgusting i feel so bad for those poor people like they're going to go crazy from the food yeah but i think that was also like common fare for a lot of america in Uh, i think that is true yes yeah for me i definitely thought about the lack of takeout being like just knowing that all every single thing we ate would have to be made and prepared by us um that that would be rough no ability to eat out when you're just exhausted but i think the bigger issue would be anything that is like timely that i would feel like i was missing out on um so most specifically sports like you just if it doesn't get shown on whatever few cable channels you have you just don't get to see it and then also probably knowing that there are like movies that would be released in that time that i wouldn't be getting to see so i just have like huge fomo about that so much fomo yes that's for sure okay so that will do it for the shining and we will chat with you next week for hitch bye Bye.